0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, and we have been in this book long enough. If you've been around for it, you know how to find it. Go to the Gospels and turn left. Uh, Find Matthew or Mark or Luke and turn left, and you'll find Malachi right there at the um, end of the Hebrew Scriptures, right before the New Testament begins. Uh, And we're going to look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, um, in a few moments. Um, we just finished singing a couple of songs uh, that I anticipated would be somewhat of an unusual uh, arrangement together. I'm not sure that anyone would naturally put um, "It Is Well with My Soul" and "Out of the Depths" together. They fit. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about both of them, as is true of most of the songs that we sing at Intentional, is that they focus our attention on the cross. Right? My sin or oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And then uh, out of the depths, says, um, in every trial and loss, my hope is in the cross where your compassions never fail. They have that in common, um, but out of the depths strikes me as a little bit more unfinished, unsettled. Um, unresolved it's in a minor key Uh, in fact it uses the word unresolved Um, and all my questions that are unresolved don't change the wisdom of your will do you have any unresolved questions this morning um, if you ask some people, or you pay attention to how uh, we are parried, uh, parodied, sometimes by those outside of the, the, the church, you might think that following Christ means you don't have any unresolved questions. Or um, you might think that we believe we have all of the answers, and that all the answers that we have are quick and easy and simple. That's not true, though, is it? not true of you, is it? that you have all the answers and that they're simple and quick and easy and you don't have any unresolved questions. What's striking is, is that if you spend any time reading the Bible, you'll find it spends a lot of time dealing with the questions that we ask. Um, I spent a few minutes this week in the book of Psalms. Listen to some of the questions. These are all from uh, Psalms. How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me Forever. Will you be angry with us forever? Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day sorrow in my heart? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why does the wicked man revile you? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? You are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Do any of those questions sound like your unresolved questions? Where are you? Why is this trouble happening to me? Why have you forgotten me? When I most desperately need you, God, why do you seem so far away? Uh, Before us is a passage of Scripture that has unresolved questions in it. It it concerns an issue that we have discussed before in the book of Malachi. In fact, just in chapter 2, this same issue comes. There are questions in chapter 3 related again to God's justice. Why is it that people who don't give a rip about uh, a God prosper while people who are following Him faithfully, following Him as best they can at least, suffer so many things? It seems to make sense to me. Does this make sense to you that if we uh, are following the God of the universe who has written of His compassion and His love and His power in this book so many times, it seems to make sense if we're trying to follow Him faithfully If things aren't any better for us than other people, they ought not to be as substantially worse as they seem. In our discussion of of these things in chapter 2, I compared God to a, a referee. It seems like God is not calling the game very fairly. And we come back in that issue to that issue again here in a little bit more detail and a little bit more personally. Uh, I want to look at the text. Let's let's look at there. Here, Malachi chapter three, verse thirteen. I'm going to read through chapter four, verse three. Follow along in your copy of the Bible as we read. Um, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile, it is empty, vain to serve God. You've said, what did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape from you. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened. And he heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you, for you who revere My name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, these are uh, people, the complaints of people for whom following God is not working out like they thought it would. They're trying to follow him, and they're not prospering the way they think they should. Now, I've read the rest of Malachi, and so have you, uh, and I might quibble with them a little bit about how obedient they've been. You know where we've been through this chapter, through these chapters, about how much they have complained about God, and his his commandments are onerous, and they don't want to teach, they don't want to sacrifice, they don't want to worship, they don't want to remain committed to their marriages, and and, so... (laughs) When they say, oh, we followed God so much and it's not working out, I would like to say to them, really? Are you sure about that? Have you really followed God so much so that it's a burden to you? We could go that direction. Malachi doesn't, so we'll leave that alone for a few minutes this morning. You can take their complaint, can't you, in verse 14 and put it into specific scenarios in your life. I could paraphrase it here. Maybe Um, it's futile to serve God. It's empty. I prayed and prayed and waited and sought a a godly husband. And I thought I found him in the man I married. But he is a nightmare to live with. It was empty for me to wait, to pray, to seek God like like I thought I should. Or here's another one. It is futile to serve God. It's vain. It, has, it brings no reward at all. I gave hours to the church as an elder, and I sought to lead a godly life, and my kids have totally gone off the rails. There are parents out there who didn't care about their kids at all. They're doing fine. My kids are a mess. It is futile to serve God. I wasted that effort that I poured into God's work. Or... Um, it's futile to serve God. That new job opportunity came and it was great. I had prayed about it. It opened up my schedule and provided more money for missions. I took the leap and I went and, and now the company is going under. <laughs> Serving God is not worth it. Should have stayed at my old job. Now this paragraph, these uh, paragraphs that we read, these verses, they're a warning to us about making those sort of complaints. In fact, um, when you start following, when you start wondering, rather, if following Christ is worth it, you may be forgetting three vital truths. It's actually what I would like to share with you this morning. We're going to talk about these things. Um, the first one and the third one are explicit in the text. The second one is, uh, perhaps implied here. It's biblical and it fits and we'll get to it when we, we come. Uh, but for now, what I want to share with you this morning is three vital truths that if you forget them, you might start to go down this path of complaining about the worth of serving God. All right, here they are. Number one, we do not follow Christ for the benefits. We don't follow Christ for the benefits. Um, if you forget that, you may begin to wonder about the worth of following Christ, um labor day weekend a few years ago some of you are here some of you remember uh on sunday night oh, we took the uh the projector and the screen and the sound system out back and we together under the stars as the sun was setting uh watched uh that uh, movie called Facing the Giants you remember that some of you were here uh for that it was, it was fun i really enjoyed it uh, um and Facing the Giants is is an it, an acceptable movie but there are some things that bother me about it here are some things about it. Uh, you remember perhaps what the movie is about. If you've seen it, it's, it's about a, a, a high school football coach. And at the beginning of the movie, his whole life is falling apart. His team is losing. The parents are conspiring against him to get him fired. He and his wife are completely broke. Their car is broken down. Their appliances are falling apart. Uh, uh, and their, their dream of starting a family is crushed by uh, her infertility. Um, so that's how the movie begins. In the middle of the movie, he starts praying uh, and reading his Bible. And by the end of the movie, what's happened? The team wins the state championship. He gets a raise. Uh, the parents of the, the students love him. His wife finds out she's pregnant. Everything is all so perfect at the end of this movie. Um, everything wrong has been fixed. Uh, a revival has broken out on the high school campus uh, and even the, the football player who is out of touch with his dad, that relationship has been fixed. Um, uh, it, everything goes right. The coach starts growing hair again. I mean, everything in this movie, everything is fixed. The dog is fixed. There's no more unwanted puppies. I mean, everything is right. Everything is completely right at the end of this movie. A few years ago, uh, they used to tell an old joke about country music. Maybe some of you have heard it uh, You know what you get when you play country music backwards. Uh, you get your dog back, your truck back, your girl back, your job back, and your trailer back. It all comes back to you if you play it backwards. See, my problem with, with facing the Giants is that it sends this very subtle message that if you take your faith seriously, if you start to pray, God will give you everything back that you want. God will fix all of your problems. If you have any problems, like playing country music backwards, just pray and they'll all be solved. They'll all be uh, repaired. I think that following Christ is the best way to live. I think that if you follow Him... Your relationships will improve. I think that God does intervene in the lives of His children in response to our call to Him. The problem comes, though, when we follow Christ for the benefits. When we follow Christ for the sake of the things that we want to be fixed in order to get them. When you follow Christ for the benefits, you uh, make Christianity a tool or a technique or a gimmick, it makes Christianity something that you do in order to get what you really want. And you're not worshiping Christ, you're worshiping the things that you want this Christ to give you. If you really want a spouse, or you really want a nice kids, or you really want friends, or you really want health, carry it wherever you want. If you really want prosperity, just get Jesus and everything will be alright. You'll get all those things. And these, these Jews had that expectation. You can see that in verse 14. They're saying, what did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What's in it for us? Where are the benefits that we're supposed to get? Everybody around us who's arrogant, who's evil, doing evil, who doesn't care about God, they're prospering, they're getting all the good things that we think we should have because we've been mourning before God. By their complaints, these men and women are revealing that they share a fundamental flaw that all human beings have. And the Bible tells us this from the beginning to the end. We are idolaters. We were created to know God and to love God and to uh, worship him and to be satisfied with him and to treasure him above everything else, to center our lives around him, to value him, That's the way life is supposed to work. That's the way we're supposed to be as human beings. But the Bible says that we have this consistent pattern and I find it in my life that I choose other things. I think there are other things that will satisfy me, other things that I treasure, other things that I value instead of God. Um, Tim Keller says this, Sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. When you're following Christ for the benefits, you're not worshipping him, you're worshipping the good things that you think he ought to guarantee you. And there are a few things that are more insidious than using religion to get what you want. It's easy, it's easy to see in an alcoholic's life how he uses alcohol to anesthetize his pain or to find some sort of comfort. It's easy to see in someone who's dependent upon pornography to see how they're using pornography to to get uh, rid of the loneliness or to find some sort of companionship or stress relief in their life. That's easy to see. It's easy to see in a shopaholic how uh, going and buying new things is supposed to satisfy them and make them happy. It's really easy to see that. It's not as easy to see when someone is a churchaholic. Or a, a jesus holic, someone who's using Christ, using the church, using religion to get the things that they really want. You see this pattern in the in the Gospels? This is why Jesus was so harsh with the Pharisees, why he went after them with such a hard edge. They were not religious people because they loved God. They were religious people because being a religious person in Jerusalem, in Israel, gave them power gave them money, gave them credibility. See, this search, this search for satisfaction is one of the chief symptoms of our disconnect from God and it's one of the reasons that we stand guilty and condemned before Him. So how do you know if you're following Christ for the benefits and not for Christ Himself? It's interesting that that they use this word gain, gain. It is futile to serve God. What did we gain? You know, Paul uses that word in Philippians 1 to talk about gain. For Paul, what was gain? To know Christ, to be with Christ, to have Christ. That's gain. Gain. How do you know if you're following, if your relationship with Christ is just a tool to get the things that you really want? How can you tell that in your life? You can tell that by whether or not you make complaints the way these men and women, uh, you, whether you complain like these men and women did. You can tell if you're following Christ for the benefits if you, when you complain or by how you speak when you don't get the benefits that you think you should have. That's the way you can tell if you want Christ or if you want the good things that come with Christ. So the moment uh, you're tempted to complain, the solution is not to grumble about God's justice and about what he hasn't given you. The solution is to ask God to give more of himself to you. Now, there's a second truth here that can be forgotten by followers of Christ. The first one is that we don't follow Christ for the benefits. The second truth that can be forgotten by followers of Christ when they're complaining or flirting with complaining about God's justice is this. God uses suffering to transform you. God uses suffering to transform you. This is not explicit in the text, but I think it's very important. And it's certainly uh, biblical here. Notice... Um, it, it, uh, it's tangential to the text. So these men and women see their struggles, they see the problems that they're having as a sign that God has abandoned them. We're not prospering like other people did. Uh, are prospering. God must have left us alone. God must be abandoning us. God is incompetent in running the universe. But the Bible actually says that for God's people, trouble, hardship, pain... Are a sign of his presence, not a sign of his absence. In fact, they're a guarantee of your legitimacy as a child. Hebrews 12 says that. Listen, let me read Hebrews 12 5 through 9. Listen and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Hebrews may be saying to us that if you think you are a Christian and you have no unresolved questions in your life, you might not really be in the family. better check your birth certificate. God disciplines his children. I learned this. I did not come up with this myself, but... uh, uh, I think I read it in Shepherding a Child's Heart. Whenever I sit down to discipline one of my children, I always try to say to them, I am disciplining you now because I love you, not because I'm angry with you. (laughs) That's true most of the time. Um, I'm disciplining you now, not because I'm angry with you, but because I love you. One time I said that to one of our children who remain nameless, but her initials are Jenna. And Jenna looked at me and she said, you always say that. I always say that because it's true. If I didn't care, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. It's too much of a pain to discipline you. I just let it go. Hebrews 12, if you're really one of God's sons, if you're really one of God's children, he disciplines you. He uses hardship you see this over and over and over again in the Bible. These people said, our life is hard, God must have abandoned us. Hebrews 12 says, if your life is hard, God is, is your father. Is there anybody in the Bible that God has not crushed before he used them effectively? Is there anybody in the Bible that God did not drive into hopelessness before he used them effectively? Think about that. God crushed Abraham and Sarah through a quarter century of infertility and they teach us that God can be trusted in astounding ways. He crushed Joseph in slavery and in prison and he used him to save an entire nation and and Joseph's family. He crushed Paul with some sort of disease. We don't know what it was, but when Paul came out of it, he said, I know for sure that God's grace is sufficient. It can, it can carry you through any weakness that you have. He crushed Mary and Martha with grief when their brother Lazarus died so that they would really know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The best example in the Bible, is it not? God crushed his son, so that all who believe in in him and turn to him for forgiveness and life might find their penalty for sin paid and God's welcome into his family. This week I I read a review of a book called Written in Tears by Luke Veld. Uh, I read a review, not the book itself, though I'm looking forward to reading uh, this book, uh, Luke Veld and his wife were serving as a church planter. One day, their, their 13-year-old daughter had a, some sort of seizure, and uh, they were taking her to the hospital, and she died in uh, his wife's arms while they were taking her to the hospital. It was a, it was a freak death, totally this freak death that happened, a, a complete shock, And uh, Luke Veld wrote this book called Written in Tears to describe his experiences and what happened to him uh, and how he endured this experience. He said this, It took the death of my daughter for me to begin to understand the love of God. I was crushed, he said, to that extent. It's interesting if, if you sat down with him and asked and said to him, which would you rather have? Would you rather have your daughter or would you rather have the deeper understanding of God's love that you've gotten through the loss of her? I'm not sure he answers that question in the book. Um, and I bet if you asked him on every other day, you might get a different answer. He, he didn't have that choice. Uh, but he found more of God in the midst of his grief. Grief. Listen to what Philip Yancey wrote about pain. He said this, I have never read a poem extolling the virtues of pain, nor seen a statue erected in its honor, nor heard a hymn dedicated to it. Pain is usually described as unpleasantness. Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pin them against the wall in a dark secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake he really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers. I'm convinced that pain gets a bad press. Perhaps we should see statues, hymns, and poems to pain. Why do I think that? Because up close, under a microscope, the pain network is seen in an entirely different light. It is perhaps the paragon of creative genius. Are you experiencing some of God's creative genius in your life right now? So The question to ask in the midst of suffering is not, how do I get out of this? How do I get this to stop? How do I fix this? Although those are legitimate questions to ask. Um, the, the key question in the midst of that is, what is God doing in my life right now through this mess? That's the key question to ask. People who grumble about the lack of benefits in following Christ have forgotten that God uses pain and suffering as the paragon of creative genius. There's one more forgotten truth, which is actually the the, uh, main focus of the text. And here's this third forgotten truth. We live for that day, um, the day to come, not today. We live for the day to come, not today, not this day. Um, Let's look more closely at the text here, shall we? It's in verses 16 through chapter 4, verses 3. That's the focus. It starts in an unusual place. We're going to camp there for a minute. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. This is an odd place to start, I, I think. Um, I'm happy to talk about it, though. I think what's happening, verse 13, on the one hand, there's all these people that are complaining. Oh, God doesn't care about us. God has abandoned us. Uh, arrogant people are prospering. They're doing well. And there, but there's this other group mentioned in verse 16 those who feared God, those who honored God's name, and they were saying different things than those who were complaining about God. So this other group is speaking. What are they saying? It does, I don't know. The text doesn't say. Uh, they're speaking to one another. Maybe they're, maybe they're contradicting the message of these other people. Maybe, maybe they're saying to one another, oh, it is worth following God. It's the right thing to do. God won't forget us. Keep following Him. I love the fact that the prophet focuses our attention on this. Um, It is God's intention that your interaction with other people, as you revere Him, spur your fellow believers onto following Him. Is that how you talk to people? Is that what comes out of your mouth most? When you see people at church... Um, after the service, before the service, when you call them during the week, is that what you say, how you speak, or are you complaining to them? Um, You're commenting or criticizing, uh, arguing, or are you uh, uh, speaking out of your great reverence for God? Uh, When you leave your small group, Tonight, Uh, will you be happier if you said something really witty that made other people laugh? Or will you be happy if in one quiet moment you were able to help a discouraged brother or sister uh, to take the next step? Some some poor guy who's there, some lady who just wants to give up. Will you be happy if you leave having that quiet moment to say, keep going? God's not going to forget what you're doing. Is the possibility of encouraging someone what you think of when you when you pull up the driveway when when you come in? I, I'm not sure. I walk to church, so I don't know what you think about when you when you drive up when you pull up the driveway. Do you, you look? At, oh, great, no parking spaces, or we got to hurry, I'm going to be late, or oh, I wonder what's going to happen today. Why do my parents drag me to this place? I'm not sure what you think about. Wouldn't it be? Tremendous in your life, if when you pulled in the driveway, you thought to yourself, Boy, I hope, I hope, I hope God gives me the opportunity to speak to somebody so I can encourage them to follow Christ more faithfully this week. In fact, maybe that's what you should do. Uh, maybe that's how you should pray in that moment of meditation after uh, we pronounce the benediction, you sit down again. Maybe you should pray at that moment God, give me an opportunity today. In the five minutes or the ten minutes or the fifteen minutes, and I'm still here after the service is over, give me an opportunity to speak to someone to encourage them. Someone who, who needs a word to say that I can say to them, Oh, follow him, follow him. It is worth it. Can you imagine how our interaction with each other would change? How that might produce growth and spurring us on together? Verse 17 here in the text starts talking about the day, that day. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day. When I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them in that day. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him, and you will again in that day see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. Now, from the perspective of the New Testament, we can look back on this passage and we understand that Malachi here is speaking of the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus himself returns to earth. And he's going to come and it will be obvious when he comes who is clearly, who is related to God and who is not. And the distinction is going to be made by fire. Malachi uses the image of fire. For some, it will be the burning fire of judgment that will consume them like their sawdust. They'll be just like stubble, he says. And the day will set them on fire. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, those who don't welcome Jesus at His return. But then for others, that day will also be a warm day, but it will not be the warm day of fire, burning judgment fire. It will be the, the, the warm day of of uh, early spring. Huh. Last Monday, right? with 76 degrees outside. And the sun comes up and its rays like wings envelop the earth. And I don't know what you were doing. We spent time in our family outside playing. We were running around like calves released from the stall or children released from the prison of a winter home as the sun comes. Fire, heat. For one, the warmth of an embrace. For the other, those who are not rightly related to God, fiery judgment. The Malachi uses the image of fire. Um, it is probably too much to read into this, what Jesus said about hell in this passage, but this fits with his message and the consistent message of the Bible. God brings consequences for those who do not fear him, those who dishonor his name. Uh, judgment and destruction are their only expectation. In chapter 3, when we go back here, uh, Malachi refers to the messenger of the Lord or the Lord coming to do this. It is Jesus himself who's coming to do this judgment work. (laughs) I was driving through Millersville the other day, and uh, there was a car in front of me. It was plastered with bumper stickers. And I agreed with a lot of the things that the bumper sticker said, except one in particular asked the question, who would Jesus bomb? B-O-M-B. It's an anti-war Bumper sticker. Um, The implication is, if you're supposed to do what Jesus does, what would Jesus do? The question, who would Jesus bomb? And I'm sure the person driving the car thought to themselves that the answer is no one. (laughs) I was looking at the bumper sticker and thinking about Malachi 4, and I thought, probably a lot more people than you think. Jesus has come once, and he says, he says in Luke 19, he has come to, not to condemn the world, but that through the world through him might be saved. But he's coming again, and when he comes again, he is going to come and condemn. In fact, this morning I read Luke chapter 19 at the beginning. It's a wonderful story of how Jesus calls Zacchaeus to himself, and he says, Oh, I have come to save sinners. At the end of Luke 19, he tells a story representing himself about a king who goes away uh, for a while. And while the king is gone in his country, there are people who serve him faithfully and there's people who don't want him to be king over them. And the king comes back and, and, and when the king comes, he rewards those who are happy to see him and he says, bring those people who didn't want me to be king over them and slay them before me. Not the warm, gentle, meek, mild, bomb free Jesus, is it? Who says, Bring those before me who didn't want me to be king and slay them. Uh, John MacArthur wrote this about Jesus' first and his second comings. The first time Jesus came, he came veiled in the form of a child. A star marked his arrival. Wise men brought him gifts. There was no room for him. Only a few attended His arrival. He came as a baby. The next time Jesus comes, He will be recognized by all. Heaven will be lit by His glory. He will bring rewards for His own. The world won't be able to contain His glory. Every eye will see Him. He will come as sovereign King and Lord of all. And He'll come as judge when He comes. See, following Him faithfully means living in light of that day. It's recognizing that the the buzzer at the end of the game has not gone off yet. The the war is still going on. The battle isn't finished. The play is not yet half done. The curtain hasn't fallen yet. We don't anticipate all of the benefits, all of the rewards of following Christ until that day, not this day. We don't live for this day. We live for that day. Uh, when Kathy first learned how to quilt, um, she learned that one of the important things about quilting is that in order for your quilt to have interest in it, uh, there's got to be different, va- uh, different fabrics. There's got to be light fabrics and dark fabrics. One of the problems, though, in telling which fabrics are which is uh, uh, patterns in the fabric. Sometimes a stripe or stars or polka dots can make a fabric. You look at it, you're not sure. Is that light or is it dark? I am not, can't tell. So quilters use something called a value finder. A value finder is a red piece of plastic. And you can see through it. And you take your red piece of plastic and you put it over your fabric. And that red plastic removes all of the distraction of the stripes and the stars and the polka dots and the the boxes and all the distractions of the pattern. And you can see what color is it. Is this a dark or is this a light fabric? So what Malachi is saying is that the day that Jesus Christ comes is the real value finder. And when he comes, it will remove all of the distractions of things like popularity and fame and riches and apparent pleasure. That day will reveal the true quality of men and women who are followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not. We live for that day, not this day. Before I finish, I must tell you this morning that your destiny on that day, whether Jesus coming for you is a burning furnace or a warm sunshine, your destiny is ultimately related to how you respond to Jesus Christ today. Um, God's command for you today, now, is that you turn to Him, that you trust in Him, that you believe in Him, that you turn from whatever you think is satisfying you now to Him. He's the Savior. He died to take away your sins. And without Him, you face the prospect, you face only the prospect of God's wrath. So turn to Him today in anticipation of that day. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that knowing Him is better than any of the benefits that come. And you'll find that knowing Him is better than being pain-free or suffering-free. And it's more eternal than the pleasures that we pursue now. Let us pray, shall we? I'd like you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment this morning. This is a passage of Scripture that promises terrible things, terrible things for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, those who are in pursuit of of good things, uh, but not God himself. The Bible tells us that that's the condition under which we were all born. We are naturally estranged from God, natural idolaters, naturally pursuing things other than him. And because of that, you and I deserved God's just condemnation, his wrath. This furnace, this burning furnace that Malachi describes is a just recompense for rejecting God. Christ has come. He has lived the perfect life. He died on the cross as our substitute. He took in his body the penalty that we deserve. He bore the fiery wrath of his father on the cross when he died. He rose again and ascended into heaven. And today he offers life and forgiveness to whoever will receive it through him, who will trust in him and turn to him and believe in him. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning and you're here, today it would be an excellent day for you to turn to Christ. That would be our hope and our delight. Well, the consequences are dire of not turning to Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? At the end of our service, there's going to be somebody standing at the front of the auditorium. They, they'd love to talk to you more about what it means to trust in Christ. If, if you came with somebody, um, they'll wait for you. We, we will wait for you. This is a, a, a crucial matter. Your eternity rests on this decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Someone will be here after the benediction as the congregation leaves. Come down and talk to them about it. They'd love to open God's word and remind you of of what it says about those who turn to Christ. Father, we are thankful to you for this word uh, that is clear. Uh, We confess that we are often distracted. We are often confused by uh, things that happen around us. We're confused at times by suffering. We're confused by the pleasures that we see other people having. Uh, We're confused by their apparent prosperity. We're distracted by it. Thank you for this clarifying passage that reminds us that true value will be revealed in that day when your son comes. And we join with the Apostle John in saying, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.